It is always a pleasure to introduce uh, talented, wonderful, thoughtful uh, people who are doing important things in the world. It's always a pleasure to be uh, here on the BIMA uh, to introduce them. Um, there is a seriously special pleasure about introducing uh, someone you have admired for a very, very long time uh, and someone who has been your teacher, uh, someone who's been your guide, someone who's been a role model. Um, it is a different kind of thing than introducing any other kind of speaker. So um, it is my great uh, good fortune to introduce uh, to you my beloved teacher, uh, Rabbi Dr. Nancy Fuchs Kramer. And I would say one of Nancy's greatest abilities as a teacher was to inspire by being a model of what she was teaching. Nancy's always been someone who chooses to teach what she's most learning about. She's always been willing to put herself out there in terms of what she's challenged by or struggling with. She was always ready to challenge us, uh, and she did challenge us, um, and often by stepping up and doing what she saw needed to be done in the world and challenging us to do the same thing just by her example, but certainly by her passion. Uh, and it's backed by an intellect that is uh, profound, I'll just put it that way. Uh, she has done a lot of things uh, for us as students, um, but uh, the thing she's done recently, she's pioneered innovative learning opportunities for rabbinical students and their Christian and Muslim peers. And her project called Cultivating Character, a conversation across communities, brought together Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, and humanist leaders. Her current project is called Campus Chaplaincy for a Multi-Faith World, and its goal is to deepen the spiritual lives of chaplains and religious advisors of many faiths, to build their relationships with one another, and to encourage conversations across various faiths on college campuses. In addition to being an associate professor of religious studies at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and the college's founding director of the Department of Multi-Faith Studies and Initiatives, Nancy is a founding board member of the Interfaith Center of Philadelphia, shoulder to shoulder of the Islamic Society of North America, and the sisterhood of Salam Shalom. She is the co-author of Stranger Neighbors Friends, Muslim Christian Reflections on Compassion and Peace, and the co-editor of Chapters of the Heart, Jewish Women Sharing the Torah of Our Lives. Uh, you should also know she has built an incredibly beautiful and loving and wonderful family. Uh, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Dr. Thank Nancy Fuchs-Kramer. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Chei HaOlamim Hacham HaRazim Good evening, everybody. It's so wonderful to be in this beautiful place and to say that traditional blessing, which is said upon seeing a crowd of people. It's from Brachot, and it means in English, blessed are you, source of life, the wise knower of secrets. That's the blessing to say when you see a group of people. For the mind of every person is different from any other, just like the face of every person is different from any other. And you look around the room and you say that blessing and you think, everybody's got secrets, everybody's carrying something that no one else knows. And it's a great kavanah with which to begin our discussion because only a tiny bit of anything is going to get revealed tonight. Um, I want to always like to begin by really thanking, really thanking Angela and Gina. They've been amazing, really wonderful, wonderful leaders. And I want to thank Rabbi Amy for her wonderful introduction. Um, let me say that Rise Rabbi once said that it's worth giving a sermon, even if only one person is helped by that sermon, and even if that one person is you. So... Looking over my notes today to prepare for this, and not just today, but in the days coming up to today, I really remembered that and I thought, thank you for this reminder because every time I work on this topic, I learn something new. Um, when we first began talking about my visit here, I suggested the title, We Were Made for These Times. Uh, it's a line I love from an essay by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And I've been thinking about it a lot, especially since September 11th. 
Um, and the idea that was presented to me by Angela, I think, was that I would come here and give you some inspiration for doing social justice work. But as I thought about it, I thought, gosh, all you have to do is turn on the news and you have all the inspiration you need. Um, and in the last two years, I have felt increasingly called to bring together what I have learned over many years, actually, to answer a question that many people have been asking me, and it's a question about talking about difference. So I sold this idea to the organizers, and here I am. So I want to begin with a poem. Um, I love to start talks with a poem. I think poetry often takes us to a place where um, we need to be. And, oh, that's just my kavanah. That's the kavanah of that blessing. It's the kavanah of going into any kind of conversation. What do we know? Here's the poem. Many of you probably know it, but it's still worth saying again. Does someone here love to read poetry aloud? Is there such a person in this crowd, an orator of sorts? How about Rabbi Amy? From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Thank you. So, as you heard, I have this ridiculously large grant from the Henry Luce Foundation to work with campus chaplains. And I asked campus chaplains when I got this grant, what do you need help with? And what I kept hearing over and over again was something along the lines of this. My campus is filled with students who want to save the world, but they can't talk to their roommates. And I learned that campus is actually the ground zero of some of our most fractious issues in our society. And I thought, oh, well, Judaism can help with that. We have this emphasis on words or powerful tools to hurt or heal. We have a rich tradition of speech ethics. We'll come in and teach them Judaism. Well, not so fast. Then I looked at Jewish communities and I realized that we're not doing such a great job ourselves talking across difference. I think you might all agree with that. We always love to joke about two Jews, three opinions, debate is an art that Jews have perfected over centuries of Talmudic argument. And you know what? We talk about machloket l'shem shamayim, the dispute for the sake of heaven. But when we look at what's happening in our communities, it doesn't always feel like that. Actually, more and more, when I mention that this is an area of my expertise, and I use that word advisedly, people are very interested in that topic. And I've given a number of talks on this question. Basically, can we talk? I use the word expertise advisedly because even though I've been involved in interfaith work since 1974, and that seems to be sort of my credential, that I've had multiple dialogues, retreats, encounters, I've watched people come to speech with one another about commonalities, about differences, irreconcilable differences. I've watched as we've done parallel play, mashup sermons, and on very lucky occasions, I've even participated in holy listening. I've also been a student of Musar, which is a Jewish spiritual practice, which some of you know about and some of you don't. And before you leave here today, all of you will know more about it than you did. Um, ever since 2005, and I'll tell you more about that, but basically for 12 years, I studied every week with a rabbi in a group in which we pursued this spiritual practice based on the idea of midot, of character traits. I'm a slow learner, so it took a while. And I learned that this is the work of a lifetime, and it has a lot to do with this topic of conversations over distant difference. Having said my credentials, I still don't always do conversation very well. And the closer the other, the more difficult it is. So just the other day before um, the Seder, I was having a conversation with my sister, and um, it was really going down a rabbit hole. And my sister was, hey, help me out here. 
Don't you give lectures about this stuff? <laughs> Don't you go to like this cultivating character practice with virtues? Aren't you supposed to know what you're doing? And I will confess to you that when I am in a group having a conversation, a froth conversation, even in the synagogue that I belong to, we have quite a few of those, I don't always show up as my best self. And I know that a lot of that has to do with what I've learned in Musar to call Yetzir Hara, the, they call it the evil instinct, but it's really not the evil instinct. It's actually just the energy that we all have, which goes in bad directions when it gets overly done. Now, there are people who don't have a Yetzir Hara, but I've never met any of them, and probably you haven't either. We all have them, and in Musar, we learn how to get to know them and to work with them. So, why am I talking about this even though I, don't, I can't do it? <laughs> I'm talking about it because I have learned something in the six years of cultivating character, this conversation across communities. Um, and I hope that what I talk about will at least give you some sort of framework, some words, some vocabulary to think about this issue. And if nothing else, you'll learn that you're not alone and that this is difficult and holy work. So I'm going to divide my talk into two parts. First, I'm going to tell you about this, the origin story of this program, Cultivating Character, which is really going to tell you something about this moment in Jewish history and in the history of Reconstructionist Judaism, actually. And the second thing I'm going to do in the second half is to invite you into the process, which will be a little bit of a mini workshop, if you will, um, where I want you to be thinking a little bit about how all this applies to your own work, your own experiences. So let me invite you right now, even as I'm talking, to think a little bit about some time when you've experienced a, uh, let me write it, I'll put it on the board so you'll remember what I'm asking. Um, we call a time when you had a conversation across difference, could have been with one other person in a group, could have been about something very little, could have been about something very big, it could have been about someone in your family or else not. What do you think accounted for it going well? What made it work? So just, I'm just putting that out there, in the back of your mind, you can be working that question. Um, and we will come back to that. So let me say a little bit about um, how this, I brought together the Musar work with the interfaith work um, to start thinking about a way of thinking about um, difficult conversation. One thing I learned from interfaith work is that difficult conversations are actually worth having. As I mentioned earlier this evening, um, I, between 2009 and 2015, I ran five retreats for emerging Muslim and Jewish leaders. And during those retreats, we indulged our shared love of faith, of text study. We studied, you know, Torah and Quran. And what we didn't do is talk about any of the issues that divided us. We kept the elephant in the closet. We had a picture of an elephant on the wall, actually, one year, and people wrote inside the elephant all the things we weren't talking about. When we started to think about bringing the elephant out of the closet, um, we realized we did that because it was impeding our building deeper relationships. And we had a host of techniques. We had fishbowls, and we had all kinds of things that different groups had developed about how people have different covenants and ground rules and structures and all kinds of things. In fact, one year we did an entire three-day retreat just about Israel-Palestine. That was a hard one. Um, but what we learned was that we needed to go deeper. And we needed to go deeper by actually coming not to teach one another about what we wanted them to know about us, but to come and say what it is we didn't know about ourselves. Um, and one of the things that I learned from Heschel, um, which I just love, was that he said, a good place to start a conversation between religions is the place where each one of us is the most unknowing, the most embarrassed, 
Um, I started to think a lot about that. Many of you probably heard a TED talk by Brene Brown. How many of you have heard Brene Brown? This is a TED talk that went viral. If you didn't hear it, you should listen to it. It's a wonderful talk in which she talks about vulnerability as a key to a meaningful life. And reading Brene Brown's books and thinking about Heschel, I realized that a lot of we, as we enter into conversations with an idea of this is what I want the other person to know about me. At the end of this conversation, this is what I want them to come to, to, to know. And what if we came together to talk about our traditions? This is an interfaith setting. Not about what our traditions knew, but about what our traditions... Um, how they try to help each of us cultivate our character, show up better in our lives. All of our traditions agree that our aspirations for how we want to be as people far exceed the human nature that we're given, the Yetzir Hara. We're all, I mean, all of our traditions know that about ourselves. And that the focus of these conversations might be exactly on what can we learn from one another about how to show up in our lives in the best way or a better way than we, are, than we could. So what I was developing was sort of a different entry point for interfaith work. And um, I thought, how about if we go to retreats and each of us teaches our spiritual practice for how we try to become the better people that we hope to be and invite other people to learn from each other, from, from one another. And so I would have somebody who learns it from doing Muslim prayer five times a day and someone else from yoga, someone else from meditation. And fortunately, I happen to have had a spiritual practice of myself, the aforementioned Musar. And it was that that I decided would be a really good thing to kind of start teaching to people who weren't Jewish, um, which brings us to Musar. So let me say a little bit about Musar. Let me see how we're doing. How are we doing? Good. So about 15 years ago, I started going to this Musar thing because, um, you know, it was just that time of life where I had a long time marriage, two jobs, two teenagers, not enough energy, some friends were dying. The second intifada in Israel made me wonder, like, what's going to happen there? Oh, and mentioned the teenagers. I needed something in my life. I didn't know what it was. And I did all these different things. I read self-help books. Um, see, the solution for academics when you have a problem is to read a book. So I read a lot of books. I read books about spirituality. Um, I went to therapy. My husband and I did some couples weekends. And there we learned communication skills. And then we got really smart at talking to one another. <laughs> but something was missing. And I began to realize that what somehow or other, what I needed was something that was going to help me that was, wait for this, boldly relevant and deeply rooted. <laughs> and I wanted a Jewish spiritual practice. And what I found in Musar was precisely that. I found a spiritual practice that's actually rooted in traditional Judaism. It's based on an understanding of human nature that um, actually blows me away even to this day in how, in how profound it was since it comes out of the 19th century. Um, and the point of Bussar is really how do you learn to live with more intention and grace? And the way I described it was to declutter my insides. <laughs> what I was seeking, and I didn't actually have the words for it at that time, was somehow a way to... Um, go past all that what Jewish world had given me. And now I'm going to tell you sort of the history, the Jewish piece of this, the Jewish history piece of this. Our liberal Jewish world was strong on intellectual pursuits and on social justice, but was very weak on language and practices for the inner life. Many Jews of my generation were turning and continue to turn to Eastern religions to fill that void. People learn spiritual direction from Christians, and we've been sharing that lately. But the focus of spirituality revival has often been on the individual and their connection to the beyond. And spirituality understood as self-realization. And what I loved about Musar was that Musar said spirituality is actually about 
not self-realization, not when will God show up for me, but how do I show up for the others? And I'll just say a little bit more about that because I know I'm going to run out of time. In the 1980s, when I attended RRC, we spent one week in five years learning about the Musar movement. It seemed like enough at the time. It's a 19th century Lithuania, Rabbi Israel Salanter, tired of the Talmudic dry halachic thing. He developed this network of yeshivot, and strenuous effort to perfect ethical behavior. And I was intrigued by it. My fellow students were mostly really excited about neo-Hasidism, which at that time was also developing and becoming really important, especially in our movement. But there was no such thing as neo-Musar at that time. Didn't exist. Why? Well, for one thing, and this I learned after I started researching and learning and going to Musar, most of the practitioners of Musar had been killed in the Holocaust. The Hasidic communities, there, well, some of them had survived. And between World War I and World War II, there had been a neo-Hasidic movement. Heschel and people like that came out of that world and taught 20th century, late 20th century American Jews Hasidism. There wasn't anything like that until the 21st century, relatively recently, when we all started learning about Musar. Okay. Enough about Musar. Let me just say one other thing about Musar, which is that Musar thinks about your life as a curriculum. Alan Marinus says, we're here to figure out what is our soul's curriculum. This is a neo-Musar teacher. Everything that happens is an opportunity to learn. And they organize it around this thing called Midot. So now I'm going to transition quickly to what I want to share with you, which is a series of, um, I'm going to pass these around and hopefully they will make their way up the aisles. Is that the way it works? Um, Midot are traits um, for conversation. I'm going to ask you to look at those, look at, the, look at this thing. Let me tell you about what I've done here. What I did here was I thought a lot about how we go into these difficult conversations and we try to make ground rules. But Krista Tippett has said that maybe instead of ground rules, we should think about grounding virtues. We should think about what are the virtues that we have to cultivate in ourselves before we ever get to a... Um, difficult conversation, um, that these are the, this is what, um, there are many, many, many virtues that are discussed in Musar. I have selected the ones that I think are most relevant to difficult conversations, and I've also kind of defined them in terms of um, the way in which they apply to conversations. And here's the question I want to ask you. I wanted you to take a few minutes, I'm gonna shut up and let you think, and let you read actually, quietly to yourself, because that'll be actually the quickest way to get that information. I was gonna do Hevruta, but it's a lot moving around. Probably better to do it this way. Quietly read this list to yourself. And this is gonna be a little hard, but think, think about which of these traits, which of these virtues, these qualities, is really a signature strength of yourself that you yourself bring. Because I want to strengthen you in what, you, what, you, what your strengths are before we get into some of the other questions. <laughs> um, People really want to be seen and heard for who they are. So if you really give an opportunity for a person to talk and to say where they're coming from, even if you completely disagree with what they're saying. And you have the ability to reflect back to them so that person really is feel, feels like they're being heard and understood. I think it then can open up a pathway to identify differences and have a conversation. Thank you. I think about the fact that our great prayer, what is the big prayer, that central prayer that we have in our, in our tradition that we say every morning and every night and we're supposed to say on our deathbed? What's the word? Yeah, it's pretty powerful, huh? It's not talking to God. It's actually saying, 
listen. Listen, and you're saying to repeat. Actually, that's one of the things we learned in the marriage workshops, like to repeat back. I heard that. Yes, I did hear. This is what I heard. Thank you. Somebody else has a mic. Let me hear. Oh, you'll be next. Oh, you're going to bring the mic to her. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, This is an interesting subject. As far as uh, relating to me, it depends on who I'm relating to. If the person I'm relating to is not that important to me, I may relate to a different way, but if it could be family or someone that, or a relationship, someone I care about, I would relate to them in in my own way. But I think it's all depending what, where you are, what you're doing. I think it's, it crosses uh, the different sections, and I don't think it's all one way that we relate to one person. I think it's different. That's my feeling. That's my interpretation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to have one more, actually, over here, and then I, I want to have a few more things I want to say. I wanted to elaborate on your point about where we come from. Um, I think we, in a, in a conversation on, or in a situation of conflict or w- when we discuss something, we really need to invest the time and effort in uh, asking the right questions to the person next to us mm-hmm. to, understand, to understand where they come from. Because mo- most often we can't really um, talk very clearly and honestly about where we come from, but the person next to us, if he or she makes the effort in asking the right questions to get to know us, that really helps right. understanding each other. So. Thank you. So I'm going to turn back to things that I want to say about this. I appreciate you're all thinking about this and contemplating some of the times that you've been in situations that are hard. But I want to say that for me, the most important part of this, all the insight that Judaism and other religious traditions actually have about this whole business, the most important is that it's easy to write all these things down. It's easy to have all the rules and regulations and techniques. The hard part, it's like writing it all down. You know, when you run a race, you ought to be very fit. You ought to have good aerobics. You ought to have good muscles. The hard part is actually practicing. The hard part is that when we go into these challenging spiritual places, these challenging spaces, how do we do it without practice. We wouldn't run a marathon or do a mountain trek without a lot of training. So what spiritual practice I'm going to invite you to think about, and this is what we talk about in our retreats when we talk about meditation and we talk about yoga and we talk about musar and prayer and all the different things that different people do in the different religions, is we talk about these as working out to build the kindness muscles, to build the muscles to do these, these things. Because <laughs> uh, we all know in our minds, what we, we, we all know we'd like to be able to do them. We all know it's good to ask questions and to go slow and to be watchful and to be patient and all that. But how do we get there? And what I want to suggest to you is that um, what's so cool about doing this in a religious way is that our religious traditions know this. They know that we need practices and that they've built into our traditions practices in order for us to actually grow those, grow that kindness muscle, <laughs> to grow those abilities so that when we actually are in those moments, our natural instinct is to rock the right, go the right way in that thing. And what I am finding so exciting about working with um, religion, spiritual practices around this, is that as we learn more about um, about neuroscience, about moral psychology, we continuously are confirmed in what our religious traditions have always said, which is basically that the most rational conscious part of our brain, that's the part of our brain that we mostly use to think about this and actually we often have to bypass this. So one of the things that's been hard for me, you know, Jewishly, is that we always think if we teach a text, 
all of a sudden goes from the head to the hand. And somehow it can bypass all that part of us that's not in our head. So that's where I am very um, interested in learning about practices of other traditions sometimes traditions that are more embodied, and learning more about our own traditions. Let me give you an example. Thankfulness is a, one of the things that I put as the first midah. I think nobody commented on it, but some people, when I've taught this, they've said, what does gratitude have to do with giving a good, having a good conversation across difference? Anyone have a thought about that? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, this is, thank you, grounding yourself in a sense of gratitude about all the unearned blessing in you have in your life, the fact that you're here, the fact that you've been woken to another day, that God's trusted you with another day to live and to be in this world and to have this conversation is so incredibly important as a very beginning moment as to sort of Put yourself in that space, in that seat of gratitude um, before you um, begin to talk to somebody else about convincing them that you're right and they're wrong or listening or trying to remember that you really ought to be quiet or whatever it is. So Jewish tradition says you don't just do that by saying, I'm going to read a book one day that says you ought to be grateful. You do it every morning. And you say, moda ani. Before you say ani, you say moda, right? The word thank comes before the word I. It's not ani moda, it's moda ani. And you don't do it once, you do it every morning. So, for example, in when we're talking about spiritual practices and people talk about chanting, chanting goes into your soul in a different way in bypassing the head and some kinds of chants that for example you probably learn from Chef Gold or other people are ways of kind of bringing those um, those gratitude, equanimity awe, the various things that we talk about here, savlanut patience, all of them into your being. So when I do these retreats, one of the things I do is before the retreat starts, I have people write to each other. We send it out on a big, uh, you know, round robin um, listserv. What is the character trait you are working hardest on right now in your life? And these people in my retreats now are campus chaplains and they write about this, this, these things. I mean, I don't give them this list because this is a Jewish list, but they all come up with the same things. Right now I'm working on, um, on equanimity. Right now I'm working on patience, whatever it is. And then I ask them to say what practices. I don't just want to hear aspirations. I want to hear what are you doing? How is your tradition helping you do it? So that's what this is all about. Um, and it's actually pretty exciting because I've thought about many things that have been, for example, let me give you another example. I think about humility. Actually, humility is, they're all hard. They're all hard. Every one of these things is hard. But humility is a one that I think about. And I think about you know, Muslims get down on their, physically down on their knees and put their head to the ground five times a day. What? Well, I wonder what kind of a different person I'd be if I actually did that. <laughs> what would it mean for me to just physically put my head down on the ground five times a day? Um, how would that change who I am? Um, and our traditions, as I say, are way ahead of ourselves. Um, and people who study moral behavior... Um, used to focus a lot on moral reasoning. Do you remember that year when I went to grad school? They talked a lot about Lawrence Kohlberg and about stages of moral reasoning and moral development. And right now, that's not in at all. Right now, what people are talking the most about is the emotional mind um, and the emotional dimension of behavior. And it's, it's really in religious traditions that we get into that stuff in a deep way. Anyway, I am going to ask, stop talking now and ask if people want to just have some questions or comments of a more general nature, not the things that I've made you think about, but a more general thing. Yes. 
Actually, you, you've made me think about this, and the question that's on the wall also makes me think about it. I think, for me, one of the challenges in trying to have a calm conversation with somebody with whom I disagree um, is the question of whether the other person is going to come at the conversation with the same intention. And mm. you always, people, I think, are worried about being, being the first one to be a good listener, being the first one, to, because what if they don't? And, and kind of part of that uh, is what is my goal for the conversation? What yes. does it mean to have a better conversation? I don't think the goal can be to persuade them that I'm right, right. and actually have any of this stuff work. Maybe right. the goal is just... Right to have listened to one another. So right. I guess my question is twofold is what, how do you define a successful conversation? Right. And, and how do you go forward to instruct the other person, maybe by example of how to, how to right. be in that conversation right. toward that goal? It just, I laugh because it's so much easier to think of what the other person is doing wrong. I remember when my kids were little, we always started off our prayers by doing a wonder of the day. And so for, until they were a certain age, we talked about wonders and they said, oh, you know, they saw a sunset or they did this or that. And at a certain point, I thought it was time to start introducing a little bit of teshuva, repentance. I started explaining to them about errors and sin. I didn't use the word sin, but, you know, mistakes. And I explained what those were. And I said, so now we're going to say our prayers and you're going to tell me one of those. And so the one said, well, she did that. She did that. They each one had lists of what the other the other, their sister had done, not themselves. It takes longer to figure out that it's about you. I don't think a conversation can ever be with a goal like that. That's why I really appreciate this idea of Jonathan Sachs that conversation can be a form of prayer. He actually came up with that because in the Talmud it says prayer is a form of conversation. Or Actually, the line is, there is no prayer that is not also conversation. And he switches the Hebrew around and says, conversation is prayer. And the way I look on conversation is, well, let me put it this way. Rumi, everybody know Rumi? Favorite poet, a, a Sufi poet. Um, oh, I'm sorry. We talked about that a little bit. Let me go back to that. But let me put the Rumi in here. Yeah, it's got to be about meeting in that field that's past Iman and Kafir in, this, in the prayer, in the Hebrew, I'm sorry, not the Hebrew, in the, um, the original language that Rumi wrote this poem. He says, out beyond orthodoxy or whatever truth and Kafir, which is heresy, there is a field. I will meet you there. So that's actually, um, yeah, that's, that's um, what I would say you can't go into a conversation, just like you said, you can't go into it expecting to change people. But I'm sorry, I didn't put this one up, but of course I was asking you that very question by my, all my talking about practices. Yeah, what is it? And I do want to people, I would love if anybody wants to say, what do you practice? How do you practice? Um, so that when you do, when you do find yourself in these um, marathon <laughs> or these difficult races, you've gotten the training. Anybody? Anybody want to talk about that? I'm just, I'm really curious. I think we don't talk about this enough, actually. The, uh, the, the feeling that I have is that there are various kinds of conversations you have. Uh-huh. As an attorney for you know, 40 years, I had lots of conversations, and I'd say to my client, I may scream and shout, but I probably haven't lost control. I'll try to look at you and, and wink, so you'll know that even though I am not practicing equanimity at all, I'm quite calm inside. The, the, the conversations where this is important are with family, with loved ones, with people you care more about than people who begin by saying, I'm in favor of this politician yep. or that politician or, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and when it's family, we don't discuss the politics because we can't. Um, but when you're talking with <laughs> a family member... 
I mean, I, I, I haven't put names on these, but I try to practice most of them. Great. Particularly respect for the other person, whichever one that is, as opposed to in a business setting where you scream and shout and talk over people and are quite rude. Um, so let me just say my question again. I get that you practice these by doing them. So I'm talking about practice in a slightly different way. I'm talking about kind of spiritual practices, for example, like meditation or prayer that don't explicitly say you're not in the conversation at that moment, but they might help you to cultivate those traits. I'm wondering if you have anything like that or if someone else wanted to share something like that along those lines. Yeah. I cut out, I don't know that this has to do with uh, conversation, but I cut out the article about the black hole. And I don't understand the billions and the light years, but it certainly uh, helps me have a sense of awe. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. So just contemplating awesome picture might put you in a place of like, of sort of, wow, we don't know the half of it. That's the thing I started with. (laughs) Thank you. I like that. It's great. That's great. Anybody else have practices that they want to share? Yeah. Um, I have a practice which is... um to try to, so I have a different political opinions than my beloved mother-in-law, and we do sometimes talk about our differences. So my practice is to remember that she is a wonderful grandmother who mm-hmm. raised a wonderful man, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. these are these are separate things. And I think you know to just sort of keep in mind, family relationship is more important to me right. than you know whatever our disagreements right. are. So I guess that's kavod, and it's also gratitude. Its yeah, it's also gratitude. You're grateful to her for what she's done. It's lovely. Sure. Sure. That's actually really really nice. Yeah. So can yeah. I share one practice I did today? Yeah. So this was not a spiritual practice. I was actually practicing facilitating a difficult conversation. <gasps> oh. <laughs> and one person said they were in a room full of people, and they were Jewish communal professionals, and they started talking about politics, and people were speaking with evil words, and I could never talk to that person. And so the person who started the conversation said, you know, I got really angry. I couldn't accept that. Even though I may have agreed with many things they said, I was, I infused conversation with Jewish values and Jewish practice. Hmm. So I said to the other person, I said, well, you heard what this person just said about having conversation infused with Jewish practice. How does that land on you? And they said, well, politics doesn't have spiritual practice. When they say, you know, when you go low, we go high. No, in politics, when you go low, we go lower. Because you need to win. And because four votes matter. And so what I heard some other people here say is that in politics and in certain conversations or with family, not everybody's going to be looking at this right. from a Jewish perspective, and then I think we all need to learn how to talk with people who may not share those same Jewish values of how we have conversation. And the key is, how do you still have conversation about difficult topics? I love that you brought in Michelle Obama when they go low, we go high. That's a great line. I never thought of it, but we could use that in this work. We could say, when they go low, we go to Midot. (laughs) I have I have one. Yes. On a daily basis, I practice because in speaking to others or in my practice, that I will constantly remind people that very few people learn when they are talking and not listening. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. And I remind myself of that. Yeah, that's lovely. You learn more by listening. Yep. Yep. Um, I had the fortunate experience of going to Israel and the West Bank in October of this year. 
with a group called Compassionate Listening Project. And it was very intimidating for me at first. Mm. I'd been to Israel nine other times, but I'd never gone into the West Bank. Mm. I didn't know how I was going to feel about this. And we went into refugee centers. We went to trauma centers. We went to a Palestinian mm. village. We slept at a Palestinian house, etc. Um, and I, I had a real transformative experience. The, at first, we were taught how to compassionately listen with each other before we went on these journeys. And that was based, the compassionate listening is based on the Quaker philosophy of listening without judgment. Mm. Opening up your heart and listening without judgment and letting the other person talk and let out their stress and their sorrow. And it's not that easy to do. It sounds easy. Because I think when we're in daily conversations with our friends, it's kind of tit for tat and you're giving advice and you're judging in your head what they're saying. It's a difficult thing to do. I try to practice it as much as I can. Wow. Um, I don't always succeed, but it was quite a learning experience. Absolutely. And what you're talking about is going on a trip where you made that a conscious intention. It wasn't just like we're going on this trip and then let's hope we also do a good job listening. Your trip was about this passionate, compassionate listening. That's beautiful. And you practiced it and then you, even then, you probably didn't always succeed, right? Right. We were listening to them more than they were listening to us, right. so um, it wasn't that hard to succeed. Yeah. In yeah. And I was learning a lot from them, much more than they were learning from yeah. me, but... Yes. One thing I've learned that's been helpful to me, and I think I learned this um, from um, something called the Sunday Supper Program, one of many programs on the internet that talk about bringing people together across difference. They say not to talk about safe space because safe space sets up an unrealistic expectation, but to talk about brave space instead of safe space. And what I said here in patience, I think is actually really important to bear the burden of the situation Situation, which is, it's not going to be perfect. Plan for brave space, not space, safe space, safe space, I wrote that wrong. Expect it to be messy and resist fixing, saving, advising, correcting. I, this has been enormously helpful to me too, to just lower my expectations a bit and to bring savlanut, which is patience, carrying the burden, like uh, a, a porter in Hebrew, you know, a self, to, to the, the idea of saval, to carry, to just realize that sometimes these situations are such that you need to actually hold them. And um, that I, I've been, I found that that is one that is hard for me because I always like things to be really good, you know? And I think in the Compassionate Listening Program, from what I understand about it, they also teach very importantly that it's going to be hard, it's not going to be perfect. And if your congregation is doing converse, trying to do certain kinds of conversations that are hard, it's really good to begin with the idea that this will be like any human effort, there's going to be people, human beings, and they're going to have Yetzir Hara. They're going to have their own stuff. We're not going to be able to fix it all. But that somehow there's something holy and something, you know, prayerful about trying to do it better. I also love that Savla Nutz, that you've been talking so eloquently about um, patience, uh, is in Hebrew directly related to the word Lisbol, to suffer. To suffer, right. It's the same root. Right. Patience is the right. same root in Hebrew as Lisbon to suffer. Mm. And like, you know, in that's other right. places, that's a place of grace and loveliness. That's but right. for Jews, patience, we get it, that there's a lot of suffering yeah. that goes into building yeah. a, a capacity for more savlanut, for more patience. And that actually, that etymological connection exists in um, Latin languages also because the passion of Christ is um, the, also suffering, is the suffering of Christ. And it's also related to the word patience in French and Latin and all those languages, patience and suffering. Yes. About the comment, bear the burden. Yes. So, okay, so let's say bear the burden coincides with being patient 
and maybe suffering, but how does the mind or even the somatic body bear the burden but not think or ev- um, arrive at the feeling of being a martyr or a yeah. victim? Yeah. Or a victim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's great. And I want to go back to Seth Rosen's point about thankfulness and gratitude. I think one of the ways that you cannot come away from that feeling like, oh, is when you start from a place of, oh, you said it, oh, you said gratitude. I mean, some of you have said this, you know, coming from that place of, um, well, can I tell you a joke? Is that okay? I know you may have heard this joke already, but it's one, I, one of my spiritual practices is having a series of jokes that remind me about what I'm working on. So this is like one of my favorite jokes. There's this Jewish grandmother who takes her little grandson to the beach and he's all dressed up in a new sailor suit and it's really exciting and a wave comes and sweeps him off to sea and she starts to wail to God and she says, Hashem, you've taken my grandson. Please, please bring him back. I will do anything for you. I will be the most pious woman. I will be grateful every day of my life. Just bring him back to shore. And um, a wave comes and he returns and he's sitting on the sand. And she says, he had a hat. (laughs) There's always something wrong. You know, like it's not enough. It's just not enough. You've done so much, but as this little micro, micro thing that the world has done to me, my microaggression, I'm mad about. And, you know, you're asking a really important sort of spiritual question about, like, how do you just say, Dayenu, enoughness. Like, you have that enoughness. You didn't need the hat, you know, <laughs> like, right? Um, and that, I think, when you ground yourself in that kind of spiritual work, it actually helps you feel like this conversation was enough, too. I didn't need to fix that person. It wasn't great. We did the best we could. It'll be better next time. So, yeah. Please. Uh, well, I, was, I worked on our Difficult Conversations project several years ago where there were focus groups and research done uh, and w- the idea was to have this similar conversation with different kinds of people um, so you have to adjust in that scenario you have to adjust your conversation to the person and meet them where they are was the phrase they used everybody's at a different thought process so you have to figure out what that is and then mm-hmm. there was also this thought that there are certain words that are negative words Uh, that will make people turn off emotionally and not listen to anything else you have to say. And so to be conscious of what words you're using, going back to the words matter, and being sensitive to something might be a buzzword or a trigger that's going to turn someone off. And if you try to use different words or different concepts, you can keep them with you longer. And that is all great stuff. And the intellect, that's all smart stuff. And again, I would just say that what some of these midot speak to is to how do we use that smart stuff? How do we stay motivated to keep using it when the going gets rough? It's, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's, it, those are great smart things and they often go right out the window when we are caught in our things. So I am told that I don't have much more time, like five minutes, is that what you're saying? I will close up then as quickly as I can. Oh, I know what I wanna do. I wanna talk about the other, because you said you picked up on that bearing the burden of the other, and I wanna tell you where that language comes from, because I don't know how many of you, those are buzzwords that I didn't explain because I was doing a lot in a short time. But um, there is a Jewish philosopher who is well known in the philosophical world as well as the Jewish one named Emmanuel Levinas, a French Jew, died about 10 years ago. Um, very brilliant person. And his whole philosophy was about, very great philosophy for reconstructionists actually, because he didn't have a supernatural God. He didn't have a God who was magical in the sky, nothing like that. His whole idea was that God was present in the face of the other. And he was very much, his philosophy fits very well with Musar, actually. And one of the great Musar teachers um, used to teach that the purpose of Musar was to learn how to bear the burden of the other. This was Simcha Zissel 
of Helm, actually. Simcha Zissel's tagline was learning to bear the burden of the other. And what Emmanuel Levinas teaches, and I think this is actually something that People who read Levinas a lot, they get very confused because he's incredibly difficult to read. He's a very difficult philosopher. But he also says something super clearly. And the super clear thing he says over and over again is you can't see God anywhere in this world right now. And you can't see God in the next world when you live there too. It's not gonna happen. The only place you see God is in the face of the other who is crying out to you, bear my burden. That face of the other says, I have a burden, take it on. And when you see that, then you, you are actually seeing God. That, that is God. That is his definition of God. And um, Rabbi Ira Eisenstein, who was one of the Reconstructionist founders, in his last years of his life, was reading Emmanuel Levinas. And he was like, this is good stuff. This could really relate to um, Reconstructionists. Anyway, um, I find that idea very powerful when I think about conversation because there's always this other in the conversation and you said at the beginning well, what if the other doesn't want to play games you know the other isn't there that's not the game the game is for you to see in the other the need the burden of the other and then somehow to understand that that's really holy work and that you you have the privilege, because you're grateful to be alive and capable of doing it, of trying to do that work together. So thank you very much. Yeah, we don't know the half of it. <laughs> um, there, there's not a more, I don't think, important set of things for us to be leaning into and working towards uh, on our end as Jews, uh, but as responsible human beings right now than this set of ideas around how we hold difficult conversations, how we really stay with conversations that are painful and hurtful and that trigger us um, so that we can create at least an environment where there's some hope for us to come together on the things that we can and, and get the stuff done that we can get done. Like right now, it's just so electric that um, it's, it's, a, it's, really, it's really a problem that, that has got us so mired and stuck and then on the other side so activated in ways that are really hurtful and damaging. Um, I'm seriously concerned, uh, right, for our young people. Um, when you talk about what's happening, we had a long conversation, um, which I'm so grateful for, um, in my office earlier. And when you talk about what you're hearing on college campuses and what our kids are, are like marinating in, because I was saying to Nancy, they seem so angry. Like a lot of, you know, graduate students and whatever that I meet and different kinds of, some of them seem just so edgy and angry and offended all the time and defended. And, um, and, sh and Nancy helped me a lot to understand that it's, it's happening on college campuses and that kids are kids that we're sending to go get educated and opened, right, and, and challenged by new ideas are actually right now, some of them on some campuses, like mo they're like, they're sitting in soup that's all about, and I'm entitled to tell you that you have micro-offended, <laughs> like it's a micro-aggression, and it's just becoming a really ugly training ground for them to come out doing the opposite of what we've been talking about tonight, right? It, Can I just say yes, please. about that, though, which is that I Turn think on your that mic, though. people okay, yeah. feel like, who's got my back? And a lot of groups in our society right now, um, black people, gay people, increasingly Jews, Muslims, different groups are all feeling like, who's got my back? Who's got my back? And it doesn't lead to people feeling super open to trying to have these wonderful conversations and to feel safe. And so I think that the most important work right now that I do is really trying to support people. And I'll just share this because it happened today. I got an email from the woman who works in the CIS. We have an organization called Shoulder to Shoulder, Standing with American Muslims, a 
upholding American values, and I'm on the executive committee. And I got an email from Nina, who's in the office there, and she said, um, about another thing, she said, by the way, she said, most of you, you probably don't know, actually didn't know. I'm a Sri Lankan Catholic, and this has been this devastating, devastating time for me. And here I am, a Sri Lankan Catholic, working in an organization that's supporting Muslims in America right now. Who just now. killed 300 people in 300 people in a small city. And so, of course, you know, she wrote, I, we were all writing back to Nina and saying, you know, our, our apolo- you know, apologies, our, our, our condolences, our concern, our solidarity. And then, you know, one of the people who's involved, one of the Lutheran ministers just wrote, I know it's a cliche, but now more than ever, we just all need to work together. You'll feel safer, you'll feel less angry, and more able to listen. Amen, amen. And I know I hate to have words from 25 years ago brought up to me, but 25 years ago, sitting in a classroom, uh, Rabbi Dr. Nancy Fuchs Kramer said, it ain't real dialogue if you don't go into it with the possibility of being converted. Oh, did I say that? You did. Oh, gosh, um, I don't know. And it has, <laughs> it has continued to inform my ability to sit with, okay, am I really open to the possibility of being converted here? Um, and if not, it ain't real dialogue. That's fine, because it's not real dialogue a lot of the time, but it sets the bar pretty high for me to at least move up a few rungs. Thank you so much for being with us tonight and for inspiring so many generations of rabbinical students. Thank you all for being here as well.